All right, if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible, you can find the passage in the bulletin. Uh, Today we have a longer uh, story to to read, and I want to tell you before I read it that I won't be able to cover all the details of it, it's too long, but I just want to meditate with you today on a theme that emerges in these verses, one theme, and we're going to try to Consider that theme from three different angles this morning. And so let me read, and then I'll tell you more about the theme. Starting in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the side of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, they saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing and crying out with a loud voice, came out of the man. And they were all amazed. So that that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening sundown, at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed and Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him everyone is looking for you and he said to them Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is the reason why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling, and said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. 
And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. And he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. The word of the Lord this morning. Uh, we, we live in a culture, I think, that is obsessed with fame. Uh, there's a lot of famous people. We pay a lot of attention to famous people. We, for some reason, look up to famous people, no matter what they're famous for. Uh, no matter what it is, even if it's the smallest thing, we think they have a voice to speak into almost any issue, just because they're famous. Uh, in fact, um, there are people, I won't name them this morning, but there are people, you can probably think of them yourself, that are simply famous for being famous. That's it. Uh, they, they did nothing. Uh, they don't really seem to even have much talent or skill. They just are famous because they're famous, because they're famous, because they're famous. And we all eat it up. Well, it's fascinating to think about that because even though that may be a modern phenomenon to be famous just for being famous, I think that comes mainly from media and mass media especially, fame itself is nothing new. And the fact that people like fame is nothing new. In fact, you see it here in verse 28. Uh, Mark says about Jesus, from the very get-go of his life, of his ministry, his fame spread throughout Galilee, through the whole region. He became famous. But here's the theme I want to highlight this morning. Jesus is famous for a reason. And it's a very big reason. All the things that he's doing, he's teaching, he's healing people who are sick, he's caring for the weak, he's casting out devils, he's commanding things to happen and they're happening. Uh, these are the reasons why he's famous. And I, I think most of us would agree those are justifiable reasons to be famous. Um, even though people may not have fully noticed what he was doing and exactly kind of why he was doing all this. Nevertheless, he's famous for a very, very important reason. People are starting to get a grip on the fact that he's the Savior. He's someone who can save people. He can heal people. He can change people's lives. He's a Savior. And even today, uh, I think Jesus is very famous. Don't you agree? You can go anywhere in the world and you say Jesus and most people... In the world, a majority of people have heard the name. And most people here in America know this statement, Jesus saves. You can go on any highway, you can go down to Mulberry, across from McDonald's, there's a big old sign that says, Jesus saves in pretty letters. It's been there for years. And yet, even though we know he's famous for saving, I think sometimes we don't know exactly what that means. We don't know exactly what he's saving us from. Or how he's doing the saving. And so look at your bulletin today. I want to meditate on this idea of Jesus the Savior in three ways. First of all, let's look at the Savior's message, verses 14 to 20. Then we're going to look at the Savior's mission, verses 21 to 34. And then we're going to look at the Savior's motivation in the rest of the passage, verses 35 to 45. Let's look first of all at the Savior's message. Put your eyes down at John, uh, at, at, not John. Uh, the verse about John, uh, Mark 1, 14. It says there in verse 14 that after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus went out and started preaching. So we, we read last week about John the Baptist. He himself became famous. 
He was baptizing people. He was teaching people in preparation for Jesus. Well, it came a time when he was put in jail for that. And immediately when he went into jail, Jesus took his place and started preaching too. All right? He starts creating the same kind of buzz all around Judea and Galilee and Israel over the message that he's sharing. But I want you to notice that for Jesus, Mark wants to emphasize the title of the message that Jesus is sharing and the contents of the message that Jesus is sharing. Look there in verse 14. What's the title of Jesus' message? Verse 14. The gospel of God. That's important, right? I mean, those two words are big words. Gospel and God are huge words in the Bible. The word gospel, if you don't know, just simply means good news. Good news. It was not merely a Bible word or a Christian word. It was a normal, everyday word when Jesus first used it. It was a word to describe any kind of good message, any, any kind of good news about anything that was significant that might change your life. So, for example, uh, you could have the gospel of the birth of a king in the royal family. A new king in the royal family is born. Here's the gospel of Caesar Augustus. You could have a gospel of a battle that was won, okay? Uh, Caesar won the battle in Carthage, the gospel of the victory, right? You could have a gospel about a drought that has been ended because the rain finally fell in the far country. Gospel was applied to all kinds of life-changing, true events that were reported by people with joy. Jesus took that word and he said, that's the best word to describe the message I want to convey to the world. It's good news from God. It's the gospel of God. It's good news about what God does for people. It's not simply good advice about what people can do for God. I say this all the time and at risk of being a broken record, I'll say it again. Good news is not the same thing as good advice. And if we come to Jesus, if we come to God mainly seeking good advice for our lives rather than good news, we've already started off on the wrong foot. Advice goes like this. I'm here to tell you what you might do in order to make your life better. Some people think of Jesus that way, right? He's, he's this great religious sage, you know, this religious teacher who kind of comes around and says, hey, here's the, here's the plan. Here's how you can become a good person and earn your way into heaven. Some people think that way. That is not the message Jesus shared. He didn't share good advice. He shared good news. He shared news about something that, has, that is happening in the world that's not our doing, that brings us to God. Jesus is not a religious teacher sharing how men can come to God. Jesus is God coming to men. Do y'all get the difference between those things? He's not a good teacher sharing to men how they can come to God. He is God coming to men, sharing how he is on the search for men to gather them into the kingdom by grace. In fact, did you notice there in verse uh, 17, when Jesus starts to assemble the group of disciples, he calls Peter, James, and John, and he says to them, I will make you fishers of men. I, I will help you catch people. 
And what Jesus was saying is, I'm going to teach you to do what I'm doing. I'm going to teach you to do what I have been sent by my Father in the world to do. I'm a fisherman. God is a fisherman. When I said that in the last service, Bob Scranton's face lit up. God is a fisherman. And that's true, actually, uh, not just here, but in the Old Testament. It, it describes God that way. God says, I am going out with my hooks, I'm going out with my net, and I'm casting my net across the world, and I'm going to gather all my people into the net and bring them in and clean them. It's a beautiful picture. And Jesus says, I'm the fisherman, and I'm going to teach you as my people to be fishermen like me because this is a message about good news, not good advice. It's not a how-to Fix yourself. It's a how God alone can fix you and how he has, in fact, come to fix you. Now, that's a relief for me every time I hear it because I get into good advice mode all the time. In fact, I find that my native language is self-reliance. It's just in me. Uh, is it in you? My native practice is works righteousness you know I, I want to do something and earn something and contribute something and make something happen myself that's just I'm just wired that way and I think most human beings are wired that way and so Jesus with his message comes to unwire us and rewire us according to grace to teach us how to begin life from the position of those who need to be rescued and are rescued, and then to go out and work for him rather than the other way around. I've got to work for him in order to get rescued. Uh, Stacy and I watched a movie this week called 13 Lives, which one of you uh, in the room uh, recommended to us last week, and so we went and watched it. Uh, it's on uh, Amazon Prime, by the way, if you want to go watch it. Uh, directed by Ron Howard. And it was about the, um, the 13 boys on the Thai soccer team who got stuck in the cave four years ago. Remember that? Uh, they went out you know, exploring in a cave, and then the monsoon started, and they got trapped two and a half miles into the cave. Um, and all the passageways were filled with water, and they were just sitting on this little dirt island and two and a half miles into the mountain. Well, the movie does a good job of expressing just how deep they were into trouble and how there was absolutely nothing those boys could do to save themselves. What had to happen was trained cave divers, rescue cave divers, had to come from all around the world, literally everywhere, to that place in Thailand. They had to get their scuba gear on, cave dive for six straight hours to reach the boys. That's how long it took them to get there. Get them one at a time, literally knock them out with a, um, with a sedative so that they wouldn't fight them going out, knock them out with a sedative, and swim them back six more miles out of the cave. The movie does a good job of building that tension and showing you just how risky that was and how helpless the boys were. They, they literally were out like this while the men pain, painstakingly swam them out six hours. As I watched it this week, I thought, man, there is no, I mean, first of all, that's a great story. It's a true story. By the way, all 13 boys lived amazingly. Can't believe it, but it's true. And I thought, there's no greater story than that, and there's no greater example of the gospel of God than that. Uh, you and I are deep in a cave. 
And it would do no good for Jesus simply to swim into this world and say, hey, I've got some advice for you. Uh, work, on your, work on your backstroke. This is a backstroke. Work on your backstroke because that's the best way to swim yourself out. That wouldn't do me any good. Wouldn't do you any good. Sin has put us in a position where we cannot save ourselves. We cannot extricate ourselves out of the bind that we're in. And so the gospel is Jesus, the experienced diver, diving all the way in while we're passed out, taking us by the arm and swimming us back to life. Now, if that's true, I have no right to live my life as if I saved myself or could save myself. I have no right to pretend like I get the credit for saving myself or the credit for going to heaven or any of that stuff. I have no right to do it. And you have no right to do it. And yet we do it routinely. Uh, Even those who are Christians for a long time, we routinely slip into a works-based mentality rather than a grace-based mentality. And we have to watch that. I'll tell you, any time in your life that you find yourself getting arrogant, any time in your life when you find yourself getting angry, feeling entitled, feeling bitter because you didn't get what you felt you were entitled to get, despairing, or in slavery to guilt or shame, If you pay attention to any time you're any of those things and you trace it back, you'll find a heart of works righteousness that hasn't yet been uprooted. Because the grace of the gospel of God, that the time is fulfilled, verse 15, that the kingdom of God is at hand because Jesus is here, that the rescue has been accomplished, that all there is left for you and I to do is simply repent, which means lay down your doings, and believe, which simply means take up the doings of Christ. If that's the gospel, then what do I have to be bitter about? What do I have to feel entitled about? Why am I angry when things don't go my way? Has grace not taught me more than that? And has grace not taught you more than that? I mean, think about it this morning. When Jesus came and preached the gospel, he was founding the church. He was building the church upon a foundation of grace forever. And any time you and I try to build another foundation than that, it will end in great disaster and great ruin. I said it last week, I'll say it again. The line between heaven and hell is the line between relying on your own works and relying on Jesus Christ's work. In the end, when we stand before God in judgment and God separates those who will go to heaven and those who will go to hell, the separation will be over. Whether you have relied on yourself or whether you have given it all away and relied only on the work of Jesus Christ to rescue you. It's that serious. It's that serious. The line will not be, oh, nice people and not nice people. The line will not be, you helped old ladies across the street, you didn't help old ladies across the street, right? That won't be the line. It'll be your works or Jesus' work. All right, that's Jesus' message, very important. But secondly... Look at the Savior's mission. He was famous for his message because it was a radical message. But he was also famous for what he did. And if you'll notice there in verses 21 and following, we, we get in verses 21 through uh, 34 a day in the life of Jesus. 
Actually, that's all it is. I mean, verses 21 to 34 is just narrating one single day early in the ministry of Jesus. It, was, it happened to be a Sabbath day. He went to the synagogue where he worshipped with God's people and he preached the sermon. Right? When he preached the sermon, some crazy things started happening. Because there were some people present that day in church that were uncomfortable by what Jesus said. Who was present there that was uncomfortable? A demon. Now, now catch this, y'all. A man with an unclean spirit living inside of him was sitting in church. And it took a sermon from Jesus to disturb the demon. You got to ask yourself, how many weeks had this man been sitting in church and the demon was completely undisturbed by what was going on? And you got to ask yourself why that is, right? Like, why is it that we can do all this stuff and Satan's like, go ahead, go for it, fine, don't care. But when Jesus starts doing that same stuff, Satan's like, Woo, what's going on? Are you trying to destroy me? What's the difference there? Well, we are just men and women and boys and girls. Uh, we can only, well, as John said, I can baptize you with water, but Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, I can preach a sermon, but Jesus can change your heart. Jesus can persuade you. I can't do that. Jesus can do that. And so Jesus, as he stood up and started doing that and started teaching this beautiful gospel message where he's the center of attention, he's the one who does the rescue for us, Satan and the demons that were sitting in there completely undisturbed before are now completely disturbed. And he cast the demon out. Jesus uses sort of the power of his own word to send the demon packing. And everybody is shocked and amazed. And people all of a sudden start bringing their sick people. And all the guy, hey, Joe seems weird. Maybe he has a demon too. Let's bring him to Jesus. And they start bringing all these people out that they think might need healing. And Jesus just starts on this one day in the life, starts healing multitudes of people. And this is where it all began. Showing that Jesus Christ is not merely one who preaches a message about someone else. Jesus Christ is someone who preaches a message about himself. He has come into the world to destroy the works of the devil, to confront evil right at its source, and to actually stretch out his hand and heal the thing that needs to be healed in us. When Jesus touches a lame man and he walks, when Jesus puts his hands on a blind man and he sees... When Jesus uh, tells a mute man to hear and he hears. What we are getting is a preview of what goes on inside the heart when we're spiritually saved by Jesus. And we're getting a preview of what will happen to our bodies one day when the dead are raised. We're getting a preview of both. Uh, Jesus came to save soul and body, but in that order. Sometimes we get that backwards, by the way, and we misunderstand the Bible and and sometimes we think miracles should be like on demand. You know, heal me now and you should heal me if I have enough faith. And that's not what these stories are about. These stories were a preview of what happens to those whose souls are saved by God one day in the end. They will be saved body and soul by Jesus. He will completely save and leave nothing undone. 
And the demons, when they saw this happening, they knew what that meant for them. That meant their day was over. Their reign was finished, and they were justifiably freaked out by it. And kind of so was everybody else a little bit freaked out by it. All the people at church said, man, this guy teaches unlike our pastors. You know, our pastors can't do all this stuff. And amen, they can't. But Jesus can. And so what this means, Jesus was famous for the fact that he didn't just talk about stuff, he did stuff. And he didn't just do stuff, he did lordly stuff, kingly stuff. He commanded things to happen and they happened, just by the command. What that reminds us of is that we need Jesus to save us totally, and when he does, we are to give ourselves totally to him as if we're subjects before a king. Look, look at, uh, for example, uh, look at verse um, 31. When Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, who is sick with a fever, which, by the way, a fever, you know, was, it's always serious, but it was more serious back then. They didn't know usually what caused fevers, and they didn't have any kind of fever reducers to take. And so, you know, maybe five, six times out of ten, when somebody got a fever, they ended up dying, and so... Every time someone got a fever, they thought, uh-oh, they could die. And so, you know, Peter's mother-in-law is on her deathbed. And Jesus comes and seizes her hand and lifts her up. And then notice, verse 31, the fever immediately left her. And what happened? She began to serve them. She's the only one in this whole story that actually does what Jesus says after he heals them, right? The leper, Jesus says, don't talk about me, go straight to the priest. And what does the guy do? He goes and talks about him. Uh, the demons, you know, get out. They, they get out, but they end up coming back and haunting other people, right? Everybody is sort of challenging Jesus. This woman is healed by Jesus, and because she now feels set free from the fever, she also knows her soul to be free. And so she's out there giving herself in service to Jesus and these little fishers of men that he's creating in, in Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. There's a lesson in this. When Jesus saves you, he saves you completely, not just halvesies. And because he saves you completely and not halvesies, you owe him completely and not halvesies. Very simple, right? He doesn't give you half a salvation, and so don't give him half your heart. He gives you whole salvation, so give him all of yourself, body and soul. He is your Lord as well as your Savior. And this is the point that I think we miss more than any other point. When people drive down the road and they see the Jesus saves sign, they usually don't think this way. They think something different. Like, I think maybe most of the time what people think is Jesus helps me have a little bit better life. Jesus will help me face death. They don't really think of this whole idea that Jesus has taken all of me into his care, therefore I owe him everything. They don't think of that. In fact, it's the last thing that we tend to think about. And because, that's, because we do that, there's a lot of people in this world, they were there in the story when Jesus originally taught, and they're there today, a lot of people who believe that they are saved by Jesus and they aren't. 
And Jesus says the number one way you know you're saved by Jesus is that you're offering your life to him as your Lord. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? Why do you claim that I've come into your life and I've healed you in your soul and yet you haven't yielded your soul back to me? You don't, you don't ask me, Lord, what do, what do you want me to do? You don't ask, Lord, how, how do you want me to handle this situation? I mean, how, how would you have me relate to this person? If, if we're not doing that, if our lives aren't seriously aimed at the service of Jesus Christ, we have not had our souls saved by Jesus Christ. It may be that we have, you know, created a few good habits in place of a few bad habits, but that tends to be a very, that tends to be a very deceptive thing. Kind of like the guy who was sitting in church for weeks and weeks, maybe years and years, with a demon inside of him, and nobody even knew it. Uh, listen to what, how Charles Spurgeon describes this. And I'm not going to read it, I'll, I'll uh, paraphrase it. He says, you know, some people think they're saved and they're not. And what happens is they convince themselves that they are because they simply swap one sin for another in their lives. Uh, that they simply swap or trade one sin for another. Jesus came to take the weight of sin off, but people think that they're saved just because they've shifted the weight from the left side to the right side. And he says this, he goes, we all know the person who was a drunkard, who, was, who has struggled with alcohol and sinned greatly with that, and then they quit, and everybody celebrated it, and maybe they thought they were saved and got religion. But in reality, God alone knows this, but inside that person's heart, perhaps the only reason they quit drinking is because of their pride. They were ashamed of being a drunk, and they didn't want to be ashamed anymore, and so they quit drinking, and they... Instead of being filled with drunkenness, we're filled with pride. Another sin. And, and as Spurgeon says, you know, actually a very arrogant, proud, snobby person is not much better than a drunkard. In reality, in God's eyes, not much better at all. You've simply shifted the weight of your sin. He says another example is uh, somebody who uh, would normally be a violent person and you know, attack people and take revenge when they wrong them may choose not to take revenge because they've weighed the consequences. And they said, well, if I hurt that person back, I'll get in trouble. I'll get arrested. I'll lose my possessions. I'll lose my job. I don't want to do that. He said, this person is, hasn't become a Christian. They've only exchanged revenge for greed. Same thing with the person who is completely irreligious and didn't even, never darkened the door of a church didn't live any kind of life that looked religious. That person may end up coming through those doors, becoming a part of the church, and everybody thinks they're fine. But it could be that in their hearts, all they really are after is the applause of people. And that's why they're there. They're not there for God. They're there because it makes them feel good to be known as a good person rather than a bad person. Well, they've only exchanged self-interest for irreligion. <laughs> Jesus came not just to shift the weight around your life or this world. Jesus came to take the whole weight off. You hear that? It's a big difference between those two things. And the way, you said, Stan, are you telling me that 
to know I'm a Christian, I have to be perfect and never sin? No, of course not. What I'm saying is to know you're a Christian, you have to know that every one of your sins are ones you're, you're giving to Jesus. You're not just simply replacing one less respectable one for a one more respectable one, right? You're not just trying to manage sin. You're, you're yielding it all up to him and saying, take it away. That's a Christian. And we see that in the story because Jesus comes through casting things out. And when they're out, they're completely out. And healing bodies, and when they're healed, they're completely healed. And so when Jesus touches your soul, he heals you from the top to the bottom. And so we don't have the right to take him just as an assistant in our lives. We have to take him as a Lord, as a master over our whole lives. That's the second thing. And then let's go today to the third This one will be much briefer. Jesus was famous for his message and his mission, but he's also famous for his motivation. If you'll look there in verse 35 to 45, we see two reasons why Jesus does all this. Why is he teaching? Why is he healing? Why is he helping people? Two reasons. First of all, he loved his father. He loved God. Verse 35, it says, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he, what? Prayed. Jesus prayed. To pray is simply to pour your heart out to God, to talk to God. And Jesus, the Son of God, went and prayed to God the Father. In the midst of all this busyness, everybody wondered where he went. They sent Peter to go look for him. Peter said, everybody's looking for you, Jesus. Why are you wasting your time out here in the desert talking to yourself? And Jesus said, no, that's not what I'm doing. I'm here, I'm here with my father having communion with him so that I can once again have courage and have strength to go out and do what he sent me to do because that's what I want to do more than anything. See that in verse 38? I must go to all the towns and preach, for that is why I came out, meaning that's the whole reason why God sent me into this world. See, what you get with Jesus is someone who's not after his own selfish interests. He's not someone who's using his power just to gain more fame and more power for himself just for the sake of it. He is here to use his power to do his father's bidding. Therefore, he can be trusted. Right? We have a really hard time trusting people with power. Don't you agree? Especially right now. Everybody with me? Yeah, America is torn up by this. And people on both sides, all sides, however many sides there are, I don't even know how many sides there are anymore. But however many sides there are, everybody distrusts people in charge for some reason. This story is all about how Jesus is really, at the end of the day, the only one with power that you can fully trust. And he proves it because he gets all of the instructions on how to use power from the secret communion time that he spends with his heavenly father. He goes to the one who knows everything. He goes to the one whom he's had fellowship with from all eternity and he goes and he gets from him all of his instructions and all of his strength there's no world leader who does that there's no other leader who has that kind of connection with the father as Jesus has 
And so Jesus can be trusted more than any of them. But secondly, look at his second motivation there. And this comes from the story of the leper. Jesus is motivated by compassion for weak people. A leper in Jesus' day was not just um, a medical patient. They were also a social and religious outcast. Uh, leprosy referred <clears throat> to various kinds of skin diseases. It could have been leprosy, what we call leprosy, but it could have also been various forms of the pox or rashes or anything that was on the skin, skin cancers. All these things were kind of called leprosy back then. And anytime somebody had something like that, medically speaking, they had to be quarantined because they didn't know what it was and they didn't know how it would spread and who it would kill. But add to that that in Israel, God gave a law to Moses, a ritual law, that leprosy basically stands for sin and that the way that a leper gets cleansed had to involve the priest and the temple and they had to go and get examined by the priest and they had to go away for a while, get examined again. And when they were completely healed, they got washed, they offered a sacrifice and then they could come back into God's presence. It was like a picture of what sinners needed from God to be cleansed. And so this was a man who in every area of his life was shut out medically, socially, from his family, from his synagogue, from his God. You can see why when he came to Jesus in verse 40, he asked the question, are you willing to help me? That's his question. Are you willing to help me? How many people do you think were willing to help lepers hanging around? <clears throat> I would go with none. Who wants to have that, right? Who wants to be associated with that and then also have to quarantine from everybody for who knows how long? Nobody wants that. And so everybody stayed away from this man. And so he said to Jesus, are you willing? I've heard all these things about you. I haven't been able to actually hear you because I, they won't let me in the synagogue, so I hadn't heard any of your sermons. But I've heard about you. Word's getting out. You're famous. Are you willing to help someone like me? And Jesus, in a great display of grace, in verse 41, was moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, touched the man, and said, I am willing. Be clean. Think about it. We've just heard that Jesus has a message only about what God can do for us, what we can't do for him, that we're completely dead in a cave and have to be swam out. We've just heard that Jesus saves us completely. He's the Lord of all, and therefore we owe him every single thing in our life. Every single breath we ever take, we owe it to him. Now we're hearing why it is infinitely better to give your life to that man than it is to keep it for yourself or to give your life to him than it is to give it to someone else or something else because he's just that trustworthy. Sometimes like Peter, we think he's abandoned us because he's not visible and he's not tangibly present in our lives and we go asking him, Jesus, where have you gone? Everybody's looking for you. We can rest assured in those moments he's exactly where he needs to be because he's getting all his instructions from the Father who knows far better than you do about everything in your life. You can't judge what you need in your life. The Father can. Jesus can. 
And so therefore you can trust him. Sometimes we wonder like the leper. Some, anybody ever feel like the leper, by the way? Where, where the biggest question weighing on our hearts is, is God willing to do anything with me? I think a lot of us feel that way, you know? Is God willing to help a person like me? You don't know my weaknesses. You don't know my sins. You don't know my struggles secretly. Is Jesus willing? And here's a story right at the beginning to illustrate just how far his willingness stretches. The story shows us what the Psalms proclaim. That when God sees weakness in people, God is so different than we are. When we see weakness in people, it inflames usually our contempt. It makes us feel more superior to them. It makes us feel more condescending to them. The more and more of the weakness we see, the more we kind of despise the person or look down on them. But the psalm says when God sees weakness, it's so different because the more weakness God sees in his children, the more compassion he feels. In fact, God is more glorified in the salvation of the weakest person than he is in the salvation of the strongest person. And so therefore, your weakness is your greatest asset this morning. (laughs) Do you hear it? Your weakness is before the Lord your greatest asset. Because it's the thing that inflames the heart of compassion in Jesus Christ to reach out and touch you. To save you, to heal you, to claim you as his own. Don't you see why he's famous? Do you see it? He's justifiably famous. Because after this leper came many others, millions of other people who've come to Jesus with that same question, are you willing? And they've always found him willing. This morning, instead of discounting the fact that your weaknesses may be your greatest liability, I want you to understand your weakness this morning is an asset. Bring it to Jesus. The good news is not about you anyway. It's about what he does. You're not the Lord anyway. He is, and thank goodness he is. And his willingness knows no bounds. Amen? He's famous. I hope that we understand why.